So a couple, uh, three weeks ago or so, we uh, got involved in a discussion about the nature of our relationship with God on Tuesday night. And the first thing uh, that we talked about was when Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And we, we tried to kind of analyze what the aspects of a friendship is, particularly that we're spoken about in the scripture, like a, a friend reveals everything in his heart, like I've told you everything the Father wants to do. So there's a kind of closeness and all that stuff. And so uh, the friendship thing was was a slam dunk. We had a wonderful evening of discussion about it. And the next week, I was going to do a little bit of review on the friendship thing, and we were going to talk about the next category, which I thought was also going to be a slam dunk, which is the family aspect of our relationship with God. So about being a child, about being a son, about being a daughter, about being a brother, um, but and then about being a bride. Well, we haven't got to the bride yet, but we ran into some unexpected controversy over the child thing, and it was pretty cool. A uh, bunch of good questions. Uh, some scripture came up. Some study was done. Research was being done. It was just a lot of cool stuff going on. And so that's where these questions came from. When did God become your father? And when did you become his child? Okay, so now the reason that this is a pretty significant question is because it's a question about God. And it's a question about you. And one of the things that I've learned is that the two most important things you think about clearly, are who is God and who am I? Because those thoughts really do govern all your life. And it makes a difference. And so a lot of times you'll run into things that have either come at us as doctrine or that we just assume to believe, or we've got a a certain interpretation of scripture that just what we had. And it seems to me like the Holy Spirit when the time is right in a, in a person's life or a group's life or a leader's life or whatever, the Holy Spirit will illuminate something and say, kind of like the, uh, how's that working out for you kind of question. <laughs> and so it, it, it's okay to re-examine beliefs. It really is. And, and this is one of those beliefs that's so fundamental, but there really are a, a wide variety of opinions about it. There's a number of doctrines that speak to it in one way or another. When did God become, and you notice that it's in italics because I want us to hold it loosely for a second as we're going to look at it. When did God become your father and when did you become his child? Now, there's a microphone over there and it's going to take a a little while to work through this, at least a couple of weeks. So I'm totally okay with you getting up if a question gets sparked. And if you are just uh, visiting first time or whatever, that's for really true. There is a mic, and you can ask questions. <laughs> and uh, we eventually, between all of us, we come up with really profound, workable answers. And sometimes that's, I don't know. <laughs> and one of the things I've learned is that I don't know is a really profound, workable answer. Because our stature in our life is not built on knowing and being right in every single thing. That was what Adam and Eve dipped their toe into, being right, knowing the difference, trying to navigate their life on the ability to know right from wrong, good from evil. And I'm not suggesting we abandon all all hope of knowing what's good, but what I'm saying is you're welcome to ask questions, and we may or may not come up with good answers for it. But we will dig in. So when did God become your father, and when did you become his child? Uh, Before... I just take a poll of the room and get 12 different answers. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. 
So I was trying to think why there is the controversy there is. And uh, these are some scripture I put in out of the David Bentley Hart New Testament. And for those of you in Spanish, it's a direct translation. So if it's good, tell me afterwards. And if it's weird, tell me afterwards. Uh, this passage at the beginning uh, of the Gospel of John, it says he came to those things that were not his own, and they did. He came to those things that were not his own, and they did not accept him. Not his own. I got to check that. I typed that in because I don't have an electronic version of things. Is the way he translated that? Yeah. yeah. Let me try something here. though. let me check. I think it's things that were his own. That's terrible. Mess it up right from the start. He came to those things that were his own. <laughs> eh. There we go. Yeah, nice use of the red pen, huh? the markout pen. He came to those things which were his own, and they who were his own did not accept him. But as many as did accept him, to them he gave the power to become God's children to those having faith in his name, those born not of blood, nor of man's desires, but of God. And so that is one of the sources that we encountered on a couple of the Tuesday night discussions about the uh, question about when do we come? So it says in here that as many as accepted, he gave them the power to become. And so I was looking for a little bit of understanding in the Greek. And so that to become is uh, this word down here, genomai. It's, the, the, uh, it, it's to be empowered to do something. It's to cause to be. But the first one is the one that really caught my eye. It's Paralambano. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him. Now, if you're like me, and you started out in a, a denominational background or evangelical background, like a Baptist church or something, Early on in that language and in that vocabulary, uh, to believe in Jesus takes on a very structured form. It means that you agree and confess, you agree with, with who he, the story of him is, that he's uh, God in the flesh and he died for your sins, and that confession rolls around what we would call the story of the gospel. Paralambano is a very interesting word, and it's a word that got my heart kind of excited because there's another really small word, and that small word is, is uh, called ace. And both of them carry a very similar component, and that is this. So this is translated from, and it means to receive near or to hold near. It does not mean to sit passively and believe or receive as if you were receiving a doctrinal statement or you were receiving something like that. It's a motion word, and th there's a ton in this word. It's used in a lot of places, but all of them have to do with pulling something close, drawing something near to you, or, or receiving it, and, and it has to do with the thing and you. And so look at this definition, and you can pick it up a little bit. It's, uh, it's to receive near or to associate with oneself in a familiar or intimate act or relationship. All right, so the, the, re the reason that this triggered me in a positive way was over in John 5, uh, there's the story when, when uh, the guys were asking and said, 
what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you would believe, and it's the word ace, not ain. Not believe in Jesus, believe into Jesus. And ace is a word like this that denotes a starting point, and then it moves into something. And it really, if it's, if it's being translated sort of literally, uh, and you can get that in places like Young's Literal Translation, stuff like that, even though it's usually awkward in the sentence structure in English, it means believe into. So what Jesus' answer to these folks were about what do we have to do to work the works of God is not just believe in your head in Jesus or even in your heart in Jesus. You have to believe into. In other words, you have to begin to examine and embrace. And then Paralambano carries the same thing. You got to believe those that pull him near to them, those that begin to draw him in. And it, it opens the, it opens up what we're being asked a lot. We're not being asked to judge Jesus and that story about him against other stories or no story at all. That is not what we're being asked. That's not what belief in Jesus constitutes. Belief in Jesus, I mean, uh, it's into. It's relational. It's moving from right here. Paralambano means taking him when he's presented and drawing him to me, believing into him. Ace in, in John 5 is me going from where I am into him. And so it's a relational deal. And the reason that I wanted to bring that up about this is it mitigates a little bit this idea of at one point I'm going to evaluate where I'm standing right now and the things I believe and what I've said and what I haven't said, what I prayed, what I haven't prayed. God, are you or are you not my father? Then if I step over across this line, are you now my father? Or you're, you know, it, it's a weird way to think, and it's partly because we've categorized everything as if we could sit in a chair behind a desk and do it all, and you can't. It's not. It's not like that. It's never been like that. That's not why he came. Not to have everybody look from afar and evaluate him and decide whether he was who he said he was or not. There's a little bit of a component of that in there, but it's it's about relationship the whole way. Does it? What does it say? God gave the assurance that they are indeed his offspring, begotten of him. Uh, we now recognize him as our father, and we are his children. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> he dug into it pretty deep. Uh, Francois does that sometimes. So, so, the mirror, the mirror translation. All right, so... Over in John 8, it goes a little further. Uh, this was another scripture that came up in our study the other night, and uh, dare I trust my typing of it, I think I will. Anyway, this was interesting, and I loved it. This is the nature of the study and the discussion on Tuesday night. Uh, it was raised, the question was raised, well, isn't there the one where Jesus says, you're of your father the devil, to the Pharisees? And, and it does say that in certain translations. So I was looking at, at Hart's translation, and it says this. Uh, John 8, 44, and then there's a little thing down here, and uh, 54 and 55. You come from a father who is the slanderer, and you wish to do your father's wishes. You come from. All right, now, if you're predisposed to categorizing everything in, a, in, a, in what state am I in, what state are you in, you know, as if everybody is in an independent state in relation to the Lord, 
Then this verse is going to mean to you in a normal translation, or you are of your father the devil, or something like that. That's what most of them translate, New American Standard translate that. Well, it does open the door then to say, well, God's the father of some people, and the devil's the father of others. Let me make a little bit of a case for you for one thing. The devil doesn't have the power to create people. He has the power to lie to them. And so the relationship that exists that Jesus is talking about here in this idea, uh, you come from a father who is the slanderer. We're going to see in just a second, I think, that what he's talking about is the reasoning that is spinning around in their heads and coming out their mouth. It's not opening up a category of people on the face of the earth that are not made by God. And I think to assume that, or to, to lean that direction is just, is just not right. The next part of the verse, it's my father, and he's still talking to these same people, and he's arguing with them because they just got through saying, well, you know, we're son of Abraham, all this kind of stuff. It is my father of whom you say he is our God, who gives me glory, and you have not known him, but I know him. And so the reason that I put that verse up there is because this statement up here, you come from a father, is an issue of knowledge, not an issue of lineage. It's not an issue of DNA. It's an issue of aligning yourself with the thoughts and the, and the process of something else. So here's a little bit of help. That word ek is also a small word. Uh, preposition, but look at the definition of it. It fits the same sort of thing. It says the point whence an action or emotion proceeds from or out from of a place or a time or a little directive. So what Jesus is saying is that you don't know my father. And so the things that you're seeing and saying and, and challenging are coming from another source. They're coming out from the father of lies. Okay? So it's a... And if you go back and you look at the... Like an interlineal or something, this is something that Jen did a good job of the other night. It doesn't say... Uh, like if you look at New American Standard, there'll be a, italicized words like your that, that seem to link your father the devil. They're not there. It's, a, it's an unusual statement. Look, you're of a father, but this father that you're from is a liar, is what he was saying. Okay? There's other places. So, I do, I do, I'm willing to acknowledge that the question has some merit, and it took us two weeks to wrestle through it, and we haven't got really a firm deal on answer, so that's what I want to talk about a little bit today, and kind of uh, set a, set a, a goal for how to wrestle through questions like this. So how do we proceed with the question? Well, we have to pick a perspective. So if I'm going to ask the question, when did God become my father and when did I become a child? From my point of view, the question is going to sound like this. When and how did I become God's child? And that question begs a certain kind of answer. And it will cause you to ask a certain kind of questions and do certain kind of research. The other question is, when did God become my father? Now, one of the discussions that we had... Uh, and that I hear really uh, all, all over the place in Facebook and, and talking with people and stuff, is this idea of, well, you know, we're all uh, creatures of God. We're, we're, I've even heard people say, we're all children of God because he made us, but we're not like family children of God until 
we do something and he is able to receive us and do something like that. Now, <laughs> that's because we're looking at this from our perspective, from our side of things. We're arguing it from this side. Instead of another option, another point of view. So this is what I'm thinking, is these are the way the questions come out if we are looking from my perspective. And if we look from God's perspective, the question is like this. When did I, meaning God, so envision God saying this, when did I see you as my child? Now, which is a more important question or a better perspective point to ask from? It's got to be that because of this. What God sees is the way things are. What we see sometimes is and sometimes isn't. That's just the facts. We're limited by finiteness, but we're also limited by the concepts of perception and stuff like that. And so if we can, if we can prioritize how God sees something over how we see it, we are going to open up a whole new realm of understanding to ourselves. Right? And I mean, there's a bunch of us in this room that are excited about the fact that we understand that heaven is open to us and that we can ascend, we can visit, we can have open visions, we can do things like that. And that's because we're starting to understand that this is the more important perspective. But I don't want to just completely jump there right this second. I want to stay with it one more point of view. So when did I see you as my child is one of the questions. And then when did I, God, start to relate to you as your father? Now, some of the silly things that come out of this side, when did God become my father? We start, you can get in conversations with people and they'll say things with a kind of weird assurance that makes no sense at all. Well, God can't. That's one of the phrases that come up in a discussion when we argue things from our side only, from our point of view. What we're really saying is it doesn't look or feel to me like this is possible. But, and if we don't go beyond that and we don't say, Lord, but, but you know, so take, for instance, in this situation, we had a bit of a discussion of this on Tuesday. Take, for instance, just to recollect the story of the prodigal son. Two different perspectives at a, a number of times in there. You could take the two different perspectives of the son who wanted his inheritance and was going to leave, and he was willing to dishonor and, and, and almost neglect or reject his father to do so. And then you could have the father that was doing it. And we all know the, the elder brother also had a, a point of view about that all the time. Who knows how he felt? It wasn't recorded how he felt when the son asked the father for his portion of the inheritance. Who knows how the father felt? But there were definitely different perspective points. But they were at least close together because they were all in one place. Give it a few months, and now you've got the son that took his inheritance, and he's living the high life, and he has a certain perspective on how smart or not his dad is. And if he's like, what do you, what do you say all the time, Tom? There's a certain point where we're, we're dumber and dumber and dumber, and then all of a sudden in the eyes of our kids as they get a little older, we get smarter and smarter and smarter. You know, it's true. It's true. It's a point of perspective. And, and no doubt the, the son that left was feeling pretty good while he was uh, on top of the world, had the money. Then when he was struggling, going downhill, eating the slop of pigs, the view of dad changed. 
but so did his. And so this is what I'm saying. Perspective makes a big deal. What was the perspective of the father while he was waiting? Was he frustrated? Was he angry? He certainly had a right to be, but it doesn't appear so. It appeared that he was waiting. But it didn't mean that there weren't still differences. And so the journey of the prodigal son, if you ask it and analyze it from the son, you're going to get a very different picture than if you ask it and analyze it from the father. And that's what all I'm suggesting, is that we generally neglect the God side because we are filled with sensory input from our side. And we build our doctrines out of our understanding on our side. And we rarely take the time to say, Father, how does this look to you? Or how does it have to look to you? Because honestly, some of the doctrine that we have about who, how God relates to one person and how he relates later and what he's doing before and after and all these things, it doesn't make any sense if you slow down and you think about a God who is bigger than time and who is acting differently. So we've got to change the way we think. So on one, one hand, when and how did I become a child of God? That has answers that are useful, but it doesn't ultimately describe things. And when did you, God, see your uh, see me as your child? And when, God, did you start to relate to me as your father? And if you answer those questions, you can take your time and get answers to these. That'll work. Make sense? Okay, so how do we do that? Now, it's not just about this question of when did God become our father. This I, wanna, I want us to start thinking about and use this as a little bit of a model. How do we answer thorny questions Period. How do we evaluate our doctrine? Period. Well, I've got an idea, and I put a little graphic together for it. Where do we look, and who do we look at? Well, I put up here three things, and I put this first. What is this? This is to look at the Bible. Because I believe that the Bible is given to us as a tool to invite us in to things we don't even know to go into. Okay? Then we look to Jesus. Just think about some of the things that are said by Jesus. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who comes out of his bosom, he has explained him, he has exegeted him, he has exposed him. Uh, Think about the first part of Hebrews. In uh, various times and different places throughout the ages, God spoke through men and prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In his son. In the son. In the son. Jesus is the one that reveals him. Uh, Colossians. It says, and it uh, pleased... Uh, please God, if I remember correctly, please God that the fullness of deity would dwell in Jesus in bodily form. And then it links us in an amazing way to that statement. And you are complete in him. Whoa. So Jesus is the linchpin to our understanding how to answer the questions on the left-hand column. What does it look like to you, God? Jesus said this in straightforward language, uh, when they were questioning him about some of the stuff he said there in John 14, he says, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So, I do think 
that there is merit of enormous capability and quantity in holding the Bible as valuable revelation. But even Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, thinking that in them you will have or find eternal life. And they are that which testify of me. But you refuse to come to me and receive life. And so we get in trouble with with, uh, our past. I do. Uh, We get in trouble with our evangelical friends. If we start saying anything that seems like this might not be a standalone act, this might not be the only thing that that, that is going to bring revelation. But Jesus himself said that you search the scriptures, and he was saying he was correcting them, challenging them. You search the scriptures thinking in them you find life, and they are that which testify of me, but you don't come to me and receive life. So that's what I mean. Somehow we have to facilitate uh, moving our attention from exclusively to the Scripture, over to Jesus. And we really, and I've said this in a couple of settings, and I don't know how well it goes over. You don't get life from the Bible. You get an invitation to a relationship from whom you get life. And, And that's a tough one to grasp if you're not used to those words and you're not used to thinking about it. But let's, in our context, put it this way. Um, You can't get from this side of the equation to this side of the equation without going to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that brought the revelation, lived the revelation, manifest the revelation of this to this. Because the Jews prior to that time and the Gentiles through a glass super darkly were only able to sort of steward their, their imaginations and thoughts from this side. But once Jesus came, everything changed. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I like to use the illustration of the woman caught in adultery and the Old Testament laws about adultery. So the question is... What should we do about adultery when we find it, <coughs> says the priest? Well, we should stone her. What does God think about adultery? Well, he's again it, for sure. He doesn't like it. But, but see, they never understood that he was against it because it destroyed lives. They understood he was against it because he's holy and it's unholy. And God's not protecting himself in those laws. He's protecting us. Okay? His whole, we, don't, we don't have the ability to sully God. We have the ability to live outside the grace of his glory. And so Jesus comes down. Okay, so back to the illustration. So how does God think about adulterers? Well, we see that vividly illustrated in the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Old Testament law. So did Jesus nullify that law? No. He, he breathed the presence of, of the Father into it. And so that's, he's the one that gets us over there. So that's what those first, that's what that means. That's what this means. And then in this room and with us, we've had the privilege of realizing, wow, we can go to heaven and, and, and ask him 
We can sit down around a communion celebration and ask God what he thinks about something. So we can directly ask him those questions. And we can do it safely, even though some of our family members and our evangelical neighbors and stuff are creeping out over us, thinking we can go straight there and, and talk to God. We can do it with a, with, a, with a grin on our face and peace in our heart and security because this is a big unit of revelation here. This is one big unit. I don't have to just rely on what I see because what I see, even the whole principle of seeing in the first place is opened up by Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that everything has to be proof text because then you get into a situation where your own limitations of interpretation and your own biases limit what you can see. So you have to have a little flexibility here, not to come up with new doctrines. Nobody ought to be making doctrines over here. You're building relationship. But that relationship will pretty comfortably roll around in these doctrines if the doctrines are built on the revelation of him. If there's some doctrine that, that uh, came out of a, a repressive cultural fear that your, your kids are going to get pregnant, and so you, you squeeze this down into just a big restriction, then yeah, Jesus will probably challenge that doctrine. And this will certainly challenge that doctrine. But it's not here to replace any of this stuff. This is who we've been, this is how we know God. And this is how we know what he's thinking and relating to him. See what I'm saying? So, all right, so how do we do that? And I'm going to do it with a couple of scriptures over the, today and, and uh, next Friday. I'm going to do it with a couple of scriptures that allow us to peer into it and see a little bit different. This is in the New American Standard out of Ephesians. And uh, so we looked at the reasons why there's, there's uh, questions about this. Now let's look at Ephesians and let's just read it slow. So this is beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So you could say, okay, Larry, you're just trying to be cheesy and you left off verse 1 because this is written to the saints who have faith in God. And so you didn't put that up there because you want it to say that God is our Father. No, I didn't. I mean, I don't. But I just ran out of room. I didn't want to put that one. It is true. This passage of Scripture is written to people who are acknowledged believers, according to the way it's introduced. All right? But let's just read a little bit. All right, so... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'd say about that is, if, since I didn't put verse 1 up here, this doesn't answer the question of when are we children of God. In other words, I can't go back and say every person in the universe is a child of God because of what it says right here. Because the, the verse 1 that's not here says to those that are in faith, right? But it does say some stuff that's worth listening to. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the first point I want you to think about. God's fatherness is from where? Is manifest where? He is the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this could open the door to a lot of talk about Trinitarian thinking and all this kind of stuff, but right here, you have these components we're asking questions about. God, when did you start to think of yourself as a father? Well, as long as I was in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But now if we go back to the Gospel of John, we realize that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, pros, face to face. And then that Word took on flesh, and that's where we get Jesus. So there is a Father-Word relationship as the Word became the Son that doesn't rely upon any choice for me to make for God to have fatherness. You see what I'm saying? It happened a while ago. It happened a while ago. Uh, and there's some proof of it in this passage. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him when? Before, a while ago. Before the foundation of the world. Okay? So, so this inclination to bless was aimed at us before the foundation of the world, somehow. And here's how. Um, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, if we stop there, and that's all it is, we could go back and say, well, bring on the rules, we'll follow them, be holy and blameless before him. But that's not what it says. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, if we'll just slow down a second. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that this would be the result, that we'd be wholly blameless. And the way this comes about is in love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So what I want you to see out of this passage of Scripture is that God is a father to Jesus. And before the foundation of the world happened, he started acting like a father to us because he predestined us by his own choice and the delight of his own will. He predestined us to be adopted as sons in Christ. So it doesn't fully answer the question, is everybody a child of God and is God everybody's father? But it certainly does begin to fill out the questions on this side of the answers because God is acting like a father before the foundation of the world as he is setting up to have sons. And he's got a program for having those sons that he is fully committed to in the purpose, in the, in the person of the word of the father, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus our Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, so good thinking isn't uh, good thinking isn't taking your Bible and filling in all the blanks properly. Good thinking is letting the revelation that your Bible is come at you and kind of kind of soak in it and let it begin to inform the other things. So does this answer the questions 100% when God was a father? Well, not 100% maybe, but he certainly was relating to Jesus as a father before the foundation of the world. Even before Jesus was Jesus, before Jesus, I mean, when Jesus was the word, and the Son, and the, like I say, you can get in a lot of pretty uh, complicated and fun theology, 
But before the foundation of the world, the inclinations of God's heart were certainly those compatible with fatherhood because he was predestining us to become sons. Does that make sense? Now, let's go to Matthew. So I, I don't... I think that Ephesians passage is pretty important, and I'm going to read somebody who thinks it's pretty important too. But I'm going to go back to Matthew, and I am going to go with David Bentley Hart. So there's no danger of me mistyping this because it's too long. Yes, okay. Before you move on, okay. um, can you go back one slide? I can. Can you explain what, or two slides, can you explain what adoption means? Um, can I explain? Or can what? you talk to you on Tuesday night? You talked about um, yeah a difference between the Western world and others as perspective of what adoption is. Are okay, you, yeah, th- this is an important point, and I, I won't have time to develop it all the way, but it, it will open up some thought. Uh, we have a tendency to think in the West that adoption is taking somebody who is not a part of your family and making them a part of your family. And I'm not saying that Eastern thought about adoption isn't that way. It can be for sure. And it's very serious, and it creates a very strong and serious bond. But the spirit of adoption is the spirit of moving into who you are. It, yeah, it's, it's like a bar mitzvah. It's like a, a lot of stuff. So the, just for the sake of brevity tonight, and I'll talk more at length about this next week for sure, but uh, it's, it, don't think of adoption as going out and finding an orphan who doesn't have parents and adopting them. Now, if you do think of adoption that way, you can, but you've got to expand it a lot to realize and take into account the movement of why you went to that supposed orphan in the first place. And orphanness is not just a a state like having blue eyes and brown hair. Orphanness is also partly a perception because you can be an orphan if you don't know who your parents are. Or if you're separated from, they could still be alive. But functionally, in every possible way, you're still an orphan. And you can be an orphan because your parents are dead. And so there's more to going from being an orphan to being adopted than just simply somebody who's not a part of the family now becoming a part of the family. And so think about Think about it in those terms. And if we do think about it in those terms, you can begin to see that the alienation that began to happen after the fall that was manifest in causing Adam to hide and be afraid was a manifestation of the principle of being self-perceived as an orphan. So that's actually a pretty interesting thing. Was God still the creator of Adam, even though Adam became afraid of God? Yes, he was. Was God acting like a father and fathering Adam? Yes, he came to walk with him like he did the day before. So God didn't change in that situation. Adam's perception of himself and his relationship that that self had with God is what changed. And this is this is one of the reasons I think this is a super important question. Because if you look at the world all around you and various people, your family and all this kind of stuff, and you see them all as not being seen by God as children and not being fathered intentionally by God through this process, then you have to ask the question, what are they? Well, they're at best orphans. 
but they're more critters, creatures. And, and nobody has the guts to come up with a, a theology and talk about it honestly that says that all of the little kids that are being born in all the different nations in the world, that all this kind of stuff, they're all really just uh, creatures closer to the value of animals than they are to saints. And I'm glad that it's hard to talk about that way because I think that's stupid and I think it's a big-time accusation against God. There's some other places. We didn't go on to it, but over just two chapters later, Paul talks about God as Father being the one that lends fatherhood to every family on the earth. Every family has its name, derives its name from him as Father. So that's also an indicator, well... He sees himself as a father towards the people of the world. So maybe we should agree with him. All right. I will have to deal with that more, and I will, I promise. Because that was not a great answer. But it was. it's not to the point of the workable I don't know yet. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay. I'll, 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 go ahead. I'll make it real quick. Okay. The thing I was looking for is when you mentioned that Adoption, in one sense, was a transition from one state. You're still in the family mm-hmm. from the beginning, and then you change to a different level of authority or something. Yeah, you grow in up the in same the... family, but you've never left the family. Right. But there was a change, and I don't think it precludes coming into the family. But that's the the meaning of it is basically growing up and being presented as a son. Yeah, the bar mitzvah thing. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, so, you guys are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, right? You know it's one of Jesus' earlier teachings, and he was beginning to reveal some stuff. So, in 5, he makes a statement, uh, 544, Whereas, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you may become sons of your Father in the heavens. For he makes his son to rise on the wicked and the good and send rain upon the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what recompense do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing that is extraordinary? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in the question of when does God become our Father or when does he see it, the first rattle out of the box when Jesus gathers the crowd to teach the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to speak to them about your father. Now, we should give some weight to that in the deciding of this question. We shouldn't skip that information and jump straight to a rationale on the doctrine that says, oh, no, he can't be your father if you don't. Because Jesus didn't do that. The people he was talking to here... Hey, they hadn't said the sinner's prayer. They hadn't even come to believe him. They just saw some miracles and were gathered around listening. And if you read through it long enough, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, And it happened that day when Jesus completed these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them like one possessing authority and not like their scribes. So these folks had not made a great moral or spiritual transition that permitted Jesus 
in the revelation of his father to refer to him as your father. They hadn't done enough by any religious standard to jump through the appropriate hoop or cross the appropriate line so that God went from not being their father to their father. And so this on that little thing of of the illustrations there, we looked at Ephesians and we're looking at the Bible and we're trying to discern Paul's words and the doctrine that flowed from that. That's all good to do. Now we're looking at Jesus and we're asking ourselves, in, in, in pursuit of the answer to the question, God, when did you start seeing yourself as our father? Apparently it was before these Jews did any converting. Because Jesus said, your father, your father, your father, and he wasn't quoting the Old Testament. There's a few references back there, but he was bringing the revelation, the big stick. Okay, so let's just look at it a little bit here. Uh, And make certain not to practice your righteousness before men in order to be watched by them. Otherwise, you'll have no recompense from your father in the heavens. Now, that isn't even a positive statement, but it's still referring to God in the heavens as their father. See what I'm saying? All right, it goes on. Uh, And your father who watches what is in secret will reward you. Already, Jesus is identifying Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahweh, as their father, watching what they do in secret. This is getting close now to giving me a, a, a pretty good security in this answer that God sees himself as the father to these people. Now, I'll acknowledge Jesus was talking to probably mostly Jews. And so maybe God allows himself to be father because these are people of the nation of Israel. But we'll have to keep looking. (laughs) Um, But when you pray, enter into your private room and having closed your door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who watches what is in secret will reward you. And then, of course, we get down, uh, we get down to this one. Therefore, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, let your name be holy. Let your kingdom come. All right, so stop there. Here's something to discern. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the God who has the kingdom, right? And he's calling him your Father. Your father is the God in heaven who has the kingdom, who is the king of the kingdom, who is the the ancient of days and all the history of all that stuff. So when we get to this point, I think we're getting pretty close to seeing the scales tip in favor of the fact that God doesn't become our father based upon our response and our transaction to something. He was the father of the Lord Jesus Christ who was sent. So that means he preceded all of that stuff. And uh, I, I just, I, so do you see how I'm saying? So this is what we do. Now, this is the kind of stuff we get armed with when we go to heaven and, and ask God. So, but the difference here, here's the difference. Uh, r- rather than just uh, taking an ascension, and, and, and seriously, I mean, I, I believe a lot of things that happen only between me and God in my journaling time and in communion. 
But I don't want to let go of this process because few and far between are those things that I'm super comfortable sharing with people about. Because I basically have to ask them to believe either based on my authority or just wait for the Holy Spirit to give them a witness. And that, and that works some. And I'm not against it. But what I'm saying is that if we can just relax a little bit and not get all defensive and not worry about not actually knowing. In other words, when we bring up the question, when did God become your father? If you don't immediately know that answer and you don't feel compelled immediately to defend it, you can take some time and look around. There's other scriptures, by the way. There's other scriptures here that give us a clue, a substantial clue, to the fact that, that God thinks about himself as a father. That passage in Ephesians really is pretty significant because it reveals the heart of, of God that, that from which God's motivation to create everything that existed flowed. Let me read a tiny bit and I'll close and then we can have some more questions if anybody's got any. Out of uh, this book by C. Baxter Kruger. Uh, he just gets all excited about what's revealed in this thing in Ephesians. It says, we have in verse 3 through 5 what is called the doctrine of election. Many people do not like the idea of divine election at all, and their dislike is not without some justification, for they have been real problems in the way this doctrine has been set out in the past. It's been exclusive. It's uh, been meant to it's been taken to mean the selection of some and the rejection of others. But here in Ephesians, election is the declaration to us that we are in God's world. It is a proclamation that our world wasn't an accident, but was decidedly on purpose. God predestined the men he was going to create to be adopted as sons in Christ. And then God fully committed himself in Christ to reconcile those people that he created in this world that he created to himself. So when we start talking about things like the restoration of all things, where all we're really talking about there is not some oops plan that has to be overcome. We're talking about way back in Ephesians, out of his nature as a father, he desired sons. And the way he wanted to get those sons was through his image. But his image brought with it danger. The danger, for instance, to choose to go opposite him, which is what happened. But all the way through this process, it's the driving heart of a father to have sons that explains more perfectly than just about any other explanation why God created in the first place with such a high risk. Why he sent his son and why we can ponder some things like the reconciliation of all things making a lot of sense. Yes, Ronnie. This is for a question for clarification for those that haven't been around you for very long. Okay. You keep saying sons. What about females? Uh, what do we do with that? Generally speaking, I think of them as sons. I, I, I don't like totally dismissing daughterhood because I think there's something good to it, but I don't think it's, I, I think it's too hard to talk about. No. I think sons and daughters, let me back up. Somewhere in Paul's writings, which I don't exactly know right where, he says there's no longer uh, male, or male or female, Gentile or, or, or you know, a Jew, Cynthian, 
Is that what it is? Okay. Fundamentally, I think that's why we, we, we don't want to classify people in, in this kind of a discussion as sons and daughters. I think what we want to class, because it's like the reverse side of us being the bride. You and I are going to have to put on the, the slippers and the white dress, you know, the okay? The purposes of God are to have us all predestined to the adoption of sons in Christ. And it's in Christ that we're all going to find the, the perfection of our identity. Uh, I don't really know. This is one of those I don't knows. I don't know what it's going to be like when there's no male or female. Or Scythians or slaves or free. I don't know. I believe it. And therefore I can take all the beauty and the worth that there are of having males and females now and not let that become a burden to my understanding about the one new man that we're going to become, the bride that we're going to become. And, and there's an interesting one. On one hand, you have a unified image of the body of Christ called the one new man. And then in another place, you have the unified image of the body of Christ called the bride. So unless God's confused about gender, which I don't think he is, probably. <laughs> no, I know he's not confused. Anyway, that's why. That's why. So uh, I think, for instance, so to me, this here's here's and this would go with any kind of doctrine we're, we're talking about, any kind of question that comes up. Look at what the scripture says, then look more specifically and slowly at what Jesus says and see what's there. And then do what Jesus said. He said, you search the scriptures, which that's what we're doing right now, thinking that in them you'll find life. And they are that which testified me. So we haven't wasted our time looking at these scriptures. But nobody in this room should embrace an answer yet until you go to him, until you come up, until you gather around a communion celebration, until you ascend, until you get in the quiet place and let him show you, let him give you life. There is an answer to these questions. God is not confused about when he began to think of us in terms of children and how he thinks about people in this world. And even though I can't with absolute definite uh, assurance tell you that answer right now, that doesn't bother me because God's not hanging in the balance for it. He's not confused about it. And neither am I going to be for long because I have this and I have Jesus to look at and I have Jesus to take me up and if it finally, because my head is thick and my heart is dull, requires that he lift me up and set me on his knee and look me straight in the face and make me wet my pants in the encounter, he can tell me. And I can know. And until then, I'll do the best I can with what I've got. And, and, and I may even give it a little too much weight. So what I've got right now is that God has always been a father to his son. So I don't think there's ever been a time ever that the God we love and serve and worship hasn't thought of himself as a father. That's how I believe. That's, that's the stand I'm taking right now. And therefore, if he always thought about us as a father, and he thought about us out of a father's heart before he decided to create in the first place and made provision for reconciliation and adoption as sons, then that must mean that when Adam took that gasp, he was looking at him as a son. That's what I think. Yes, Riley. Yes. Jeremy? Hey, good evening. Hey, how are you all? 
Good. Good. I got everybody falling asleep on here. <laughs> One of the things that uh, as you were talking earlier that um, you know this this phrasing scripture interprets scripture. I remember hearing that so many times as I grew up. And looking back now, I kind of wonder if that wasn't our way to really confirm that we know exactly what the Bible's saying, because we just look at more of the Bible to do it. Um, and Pastor, you, you, uh, you, you were talking about um, how we make that transition of, of going to Jesus to determine what the truth is. And I think that probably most believers, me included, Assume that we do that. Maybe we assume we do that more than we actually do. And and uh, and so I was just wondering um, about that, that phrasing scripture interprets scripture. Um, I don't know if that's a misguided phrase, uh, not that it's a wrong phrase, but if it's being used to confirm what I'm reading in scripture, maybe that's not where that's supposed to be plugged in there. Does that make sense? I do think that in a sense, well, there's certainly a good sense that Scripture interprets Scripture. The language can help. Images can help. And, there, and one thing I'm advocating is a way of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. But the first Scripture is anywhere you want to read. The second Scripture is look at Jesus and how he reacted in situations that seem relevant to that. Or what did he say that seemed relevant? So one thing I do think is missing in a lot of biblical exegesis and a lot of biblical interpretation is we neglect the Gospels in favor of the doctrinal epistles or the apocryphal or the uh, uh, revelatory type stuff. I think the book of Revelation is brutally misinterpreted because people don't take time to go back and listen to Jesus when he talked about stuff that was coming. And it doesn't necessarily answer every question. But, but that's a classic example. And then a lot of times you can take, there, there are people who, <laughs> I've actually read books by, uh, interpreters and theologian kind of guys, not doctrinal theologians, who say that Jesus didn't really preach the gospel. Only Paul did. Well, that's weird. That's just weird. Paul would be, what? And probably upset at you. Uh, so it, scripture interpreting scripture needs a flow, I think, back to Jesus. And then once you've got those questions, I can't tell you, like some of my favorite times are when I study for weeks on a topic that's captured my heart, simple things. And then I finally come to a conclusion and I'm like nervous about it because I, I might be wrong. Is this right? And I get along with God and I, I, I say, Lord, this is what it sounds like to me. Is this true? And uh, I don't want to tell a long story, but I went through that with the idea of the faith of Jesus versus faith in Jesus. And I finally, I, I, I literally covered every instance of that preposition in both the dative and the genitive nonconforms, forms. And I came to the conclusion that what's being talked about as a transfer of life to us in the gospel is that it's the faith that belongs to Jesus that saves us, not my faith that saves in him that saves me. And so that made me a little nervous. So I was out in my fleeces and my house shoes walking in my backyard when I came to this conclusion. And I said, God, is, is that this is what it sounds like? And he started laughing. And he said, well, who else's faith could it be? You don't start with any. <laughs> I'm the one that has it. I give it to you. Oh, I made it easy. So a lot of stuff like that's fun. 
one of the um, things that I've learned is the way which hermeneutics you use mm -hmm. to interpret scripture, and uh, and um, it, hermeneutics, and it, and it's harder to it's harder to understand it in this way because you've got to look at well, what did it mean to the people that he was talking to, and that takes some doing. That takes mm -hmm. some getting out of yourself and thinking about okay, how how did these people take this? At this time, and but if you can do that, that opens up a whole new way of seeing what God was really saying, or what Jesus was saying, especially in the New Testament, what Jesus was saying to to those that were there. Yep, that's true. That's true. Kind of a living illustration of that is uh, the guys were walking down the road to Emmaus, and they were analyzing the events of the day, and as a result, they were depressed. And then when Jesus explained Himself in the scriptures, they were ready to have dinner and they wanted him to stay. But then when he revealed himself and then poof, they girded up the loins and they took off back to town excited to tell him, we've seen the Lord. That's the progress. So that first one is, is an analytical process. The second one is a revelatory <coughs> process, but the third one is a life-giving process. And that's, the, that's what I want us to do with this. I'm not really that confused about my beliefs about when God became Father and when he started looking at me as a child. But I like the question because it gives us a topic like that to go on. Now, there is a, there's another message in this that's worth it because there's a bunch of other scriptures. And I want us to be comfortable with this stuff. I don't want to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. I don't want to have a bunch of aggressive people trying to defend their closed system just belittle you and you get intimidated by it. I would much prefer. And I don't want you to have to say, yeah, but I went up to heaven and saw, because that's not going to win a lot of arguments with that kind of people. And I'm not saying that it's not okay to do that. What I'm saying is that's not really loving them. Having a foundation so you can have a discussion. And then, when they're ready, take them on that road to Emmaus, back to the dinner table, then to the encounter. If we can get good at that, we'll have fun. Yes, Ronnie? I'm going to pose the question, let's kind of like the elephants in the room that we're not talking about. Okay. You, you did mention it. Um, I think what this challenge is, at least for me, and probably for many others, is the idea... Are we God's children before we say a special prayer? Or do we just become his child after we say a special prayer? From whose perspective? From... <laughs> <laughs> Both. But I would think uh, most people are thinking of it from our perspective, from mankind's perspective. Here's what I would say. And I'm not saying you have to have an answer right now. I'm just saying that that's, Here's, no, that's no, a big no. deal this about is, what this, we're, this, this is whole good. thing's about. And I, I do tell people I'd rather leave people with a good question than give them a mediocre answer. But I'm going to give you a mediocre answer that will leave you with a good question, I hope. I think that there's lots and lots and lots of people who have said the prayer who still don't think they're children of God. Right, right. And that's what we're trying to get beyond. Yeah, you guys. This will be the last one we're going to show you down here in a bit. Okay. So, bien rápido quiero compartir estos versículos. 
Okay, really quick, we're going to share these verses. Okay. Y yo, en mi opinión personal, creo que esto puede establecer mucha ayuda para responder estas preguntas. So, in, in her opinion, this can help a lot to um, answer these questions. Okay. En el libro de... de, de, de in Galatians 4, 6, um, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So did you see my notes? They're in next week's. <laughs> no, that's a good scripture. Oh. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, um, there is another two scriptures in Genesis one twenty six and Genesis 2.7.9. In Genesis one twenty six, God created the man in his image. And the, God created the spirit of the man. Mm -hmm. The spirit of the man has his image. But then in Genesis 2-7, after he created the earth, after he decorated everything, he created the living soul and the body, which is the second part of the perfection of the man. So understand the existence of my spirit and existence of my soul. It will really help. It will, it will help me a lot to understand those questions. Because my spirit, in between the time that he created the spirit and then he created the soul, it was not five minutes. It was eternity. Mm. So the spirit really had a relationship with God before he was a soul, before God, before God poured his, his breath and made the, the living the living creature, which is, which is the soul. So uh, our spirit, that's why the Bible says in, Galata, in Galatians, Galatians 4, 6, their spirit cry out, it says, Abba, Father. Because our, our spirit, is or, it's already son. It, it has already a relationship with God. But that's why the Bible says, you should love the, the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. It doesn't say all your spirit, because your spirit is it's already loving God. So when we talk about the spirit of the adoption, we're talking about the soul. The part of me has a will. The part of me doesn't know God yet. The part of me that it's um, created um, but it doesn't have a relationship with God. Or maybe our maybe our spirit is already adopted, so receiving our own spirit into our soul. Well, I was going to touch the point. I read this very powerful book. I love it because it's a Bible a Bible a Bible study, and it has all all the Bible Bible verses, and it's called the Spirit of the Men. So it's it's an amazing teaching that really helped me. And plus, as Pastor Larry says, my own engagement with Jesus mm -hmm. through the through the Bible to understand this. So when when Jesus came, the Bible says that he came as the first child. But when Jesus resurrected, he I'm sorry, when she when he, Jesus came, he was the only child. Um, how do you say primogenito? Yeah, like the only begotten. Yes. And then when he resurrected, he went back as the first child because there was so many, so many children already. So um, what, what, what Jesus came to do, and it's, this is something for you to take it in your heart and really start engaging Jesus about that. 
you know, because it really going to change a little bit about our doctrine about salvation. So all the world, all every living spirit and, and earth and humanity already have a relationship with, with God since Jesus came down. That's why since even we came to, we come to Christian church, we already have this, uh, in, in, uh, ascending experiences. Because this was Nancy going share that even before we come and confess Jesus, our spirit already going up to heaven because it's already, it's already son since Jesus came. But we have, um, what it says here in these verses, um, it says, um, can you read this? Um, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's until the rede- redemption. Our spirit is already child. But we have to become in agreement with this offering of this editrins and, and bring our soul to, to God. So I hope I hope I make myself pretty good. Yeah, you did. Clear. So so yeah. here's the point that I want to take of it in the middle of this thought process. We present an enormous amount of potential variables. Because we're finite because we're in transition, because we need to be redeemed, we are being redeemed, we need to be reconciled. So mankind does present a number of different variables that God does not present, because he is who he is. And that's why it's important to start these discussions asking about how God sees it, how it looks from his perspective, and how he reacts to it. Because there's a ton of, 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 of uh, unknowables, distortions on our side. And, and so once you can figure out who God is and what he's doing, then you can begin to see the areas where he's invested, where there's, there's a need for no work. Uh, like a lot of things that God did that affect our salvation, we didn't have to make any choice about. He made those choices. And, and it, it helps to know what motivated him to do that. So... So yes, that's a lot to chew on. It's a lot to chew on. But the point of it is is very much in keeping with what we're talking about, is that we present a lot of variables. And so don't get too upset by those, and don't try to force answers on everything. In a finite world, in a time, like we're trapped in linear time down here, we, we live in a finite relationship to an infinite God. Even Scripture... The reason you have to keep your heart open and let Scripture be able to speak a little more broadly than we're used to to feel comfortable about, most people try to interpret Scripture to validate what they believe in the smallest possible way so they can't be wrong. But the reality is God is using Scripture to communicate an infinite relationship through a knothole to a finite world. It doesn't mean it's not true, and it doesn't mean it's not valuable. It means that for us to sit down and pretend that we're going to sort through to find the one true meaning of a given revelation, you know, we just have to hold it a little bit more loosely than that. And I do think you're right, Jeremy. Uh, I, I think that it is a bit of control that we try to hold on to. 
I think the, the over-deification of the revelation of Scripture compared to Jesus is because we would prefer to not have Him be the mediator. We want something that we can open and close when we choose. And He's not like that. So anyway, that's just my harshness. Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for being able to call You Father. Your Father. Yeah, Father. Thank You, Father. Thank You, Father. Father, Father, Father. (laughs) Thank You for being our Father. And Lord, wherever we are in our own development of of, uh, Nepios, those little non-speaking infants, or Padias, small children, or the mystery of Technon, where we're, we're child, but not necessarily by lineage. We're child by embrace. We're child by reception. We're child. Or, or Huios, where we are sons. We're the adult children that share the heart of our Father. Wherever we are on that, I thank you for it, for being our Father. In Jesus, amen. Yeah, Sonny. Uh, something I was just thinking about that might help ease the sonship, male-female thing. When God created Adam, we call we might say, well, he created a son, but out of Adam, he took Eve. So within Adam was two two parts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So even the language there says that. It says male-female created he them. So you could say that... Before, there was the distinction between the two. The, the whole, the one, is son. And taken out of son yeah. is male. And so. it's not a denigration of women, because in that instance in Genesis, he made male, male and female, he made them. And then when they were separated, Eve became the mother of all things. I mean, come on. That's a pretty exalted position. Adam wasn't the father of all things. He was Adam. So, yeah, you're right. That's great. All right. Bless you guys. Zoomers, bless you. Thanks for hanging in there.